This is episode 23 of Spokes with The Last Christmas Party director, Julian Santos. You're listening to the Red Bicycle Media Spokes Podcast, a show about the experiences of a film production house and the people they work with in the film industry, with your host, James Pizarro. Welcome everyone to another episode of Spokes. We are at the end of Director's Month and thanks for tuning in. We've had some great guests this month and Julian is no exception. Today we're talking about how characters can drive your story on the big screen. For that, we talked to a director who's put in a lot of effort, not only in developing characters, but also incorporating them into his stories. Julian is a graduate of NYU. He recently finished filming The Last Christmas Story, which is about a group of college students celebrating the end of the semester while attempting to fix their romances before winter break. Today, we talked to him about the making of that film as well as some of the experience incorporated into his characters. Without further ado, this is Julian C. Santos. Uh, you, you went to Tisch, and um, tell me how you ended up from San Francisco all the way uh, to New York City. Yes, well, so I'm from San Francisco originally, and I kind of figured when choosing college that I didn't really want to stay in California my whole life, and especially since I knew I wanted to make movies, I was like, I feel like I'm going to get end up in L.A. eventually, that, you know, why not diversify, try New York out, and I think it was one of the better decisions I've ever made. Um, that NY was a wonderful program, um, really educational, and I think the most important thing was that I got to meet a lot of the people that I work with still now. Um, but yeah, it was kind of just as basic as let's try a new location in the United States, and it just happened to work out. So, to, uh, so your journey started after film school. Were you already uh, making films, and was that something that you knew because um, I always find it interesting how people evolve yeah. into uh, the, the place they land. I, I, I love uh, being a director of photography. I do some directing. You know, it just depends on the size of the project. But I, I do love making uh, beautiful imagery and, and, and all that. How did you end up saying that, you know, I like orchestrating everything. And this is, this is where I think I fit. Growing up, I always knew that I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to... Um, you know, tell these narratives with these fictional characters um, and have a lot of fun with that. And I think that, you know, growing up, I did a lot of community theater. I did plays, um, but I always had it in the back of my head that, like, I really loved movies, like, you know, ever since I watched Star Wars when I was, like, three years old, um, just the impact that that can have on you, I think, really just stuck with me. And I thought, like, when picking my major in high school, this is actually what I want to do with the rest of my life, but, you know, you kind of have one shot at it. And I thought, hey, you know, why not? Um, I want to try, you know, to continue making stories, making art. And I think movies are kind of the best way to do it. Um, just because the medium is so rich. It's like, you know, it's got music. It, it combines the acting from theater. And it's just this wonderful synergy that when like, you know, a good movie's working right, it's working right, right? But it's, it's like, it just, is fantastic um that you know going to film school i think really confirmed my decision that i loved it um it was just a lot of fun and i thought you know i didn't want to stop making films after i left film school like i didn't want it to be like oh you know i went to college for you know a couple of years and then i'll never make another film again 
that, you know, if I dedicated that much time to it, then I ought to continue and try it out more. And so I think that immediately after college, like literally the month after we graduated, uh, my best friend and kind of, you know, film partner and I started a production company with the goal of let's make a narrative short right away. Like, you know, independently, completely free of film school, just, you know, so that way we can kind of assure ourselves we're still doing this, you know, we're, we're not putting this to the wayside. And I think by making that a priority, it just kind of led to this positive spiral that led to us making, you know, something bigger that this piece, which I made the last Christmas party, which is a feature um, that we really thought, you know, let's dedicate our time and kind of, you know, continue to make thesis films. Let's, let's not just stop at film school. And so, yeah, I mean, we don't have any, you know, big, this like big um, production company behind us, unfortunately, but we still make do and we still, you know, like to create because there's a lot of people in New York our age who want to make things, you know, both behind the camera and in front of the camera. And we just found each thing we made a very re rewarding experience. Did you find that, um, you know, you were, you had a bend to be a good writer. Do you, uh, is, is that how you started by just writing whatever you could and just uh, being a good storyteller? Uh, yeah. Is that how it, is that how it all started? Did you jot ideas down and try to evolve them into actual um, uh, mm -hmm. scenes and then, and then go from there? Um, actually, uh, for, sorry, for this project in particular or for projects in general? I, I guess in general, I'll, I'll definitely talk to you about the, uh, the last Christmas party, but I want, I wanted to really kind of get under the hood on how you That's thought, right. you know, I, you know, I, I have a thing for writing and telling stories and, and, and really, uh, expressing your voice and what you had to say. Right. Um, that, you know, to be honest, it all started because when I was growing up, I was like, a kid actor, not in film, but just in, in theater and stuff like that. Like I did a lot of like productions around the Bay Area, um, like outside of school. And I think that, you know, I loved acting so much and kind of that process that I, you know, started gaining an interest in writing that I really wanted to not just tell the story of one character, you know, from my perspective, but like, okay, you know, how about the rest of the ensemble and how do they fit together? Um, and I think that, you know, being like a kid actor really gave me a love for ensemble pieces. Like I really loved stories with all these, you know, intricate moving parts and these multiple main characters who you never quite knew how, you know, they would bump up against each other, but they did. And so I think that was what really appealed to me in terms of writing is that just crafting, you know, like four to six unique individuals in like a longer form story and how, you know, how do these people interact with each other. Like, what are their dynamics? Who resents who, you know? Um, and I think that with most of the projects I've done, that's really just been the germ of the idea that it's like, you have a couple of characters in a room. It's almost like, you know, a fun sitcom dynamic. And then the plot comes later, you know, the plot kind of stems from that, that it's like, okay, you know, these different personalities, what, what will they, you know, end up doing? Um, and I think that that's really my way into finding a story and how I, you know, start kind of any project. So it's basically character based. You, you, it's all, almost like inviting a, a bunch of friends over and seeing how how they might uh, might interact or what situations that they might get into, and then a story exactly. sometimes spawns from there. Um, that's interesting. So it 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 just seems that the more um, 
varied you make these characters and the more uh, mm -hmm. faceted and deep you make these characters, obviously uh, you probably tell a better story. Did, so when you, when you come up with a, a script, do you fully intend it for it to be a, 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 a long form piece or do you say, well, let's start this off as a kind of a, a, you know, a proof of concept piece and start with a couple minutes and see how that feels or do you pretty much know that you're gonna go for the long form right away? Um, it depends because I also make short films, you know, I also like, and I think with those, it's all just about being realistic. Like you can't really have six main characters in a short film. It's just like, you, you could try, you could do it, you know, maybe you'll pull it off, but like, it's incredibly difficult. And like, you know, you could put your energy into enhancing other areas of the short film that I think it really depends on like, you know, the group of characters that I come up with and whether or not I feel like it's more attuned to a short or a feature. Um, but I don't really go through the proof of concept stage as much. It's not as if I haven't had an experience yet, but you know, obviously hope maybe one day in life where I've made a character, done it for a short film and then continued them on to a bigger project. I normally think of it like, okay, this ensemble characters, what, you know, what medium best suits them. Um, and I think that that's, that's normally how I work. Um, but I think it's very important to me, sorry you know, to, to ramble, um, but, I think one thing that I really do appreciate is, you know, having very distinct character dynamics. Like, you know, I think that unless you have, you know, the most boring thing is an ensemble where everyone has the same personality, that it's just like, okay, you know, I, you might as well be watching paint dry, that you're just like waiting for the plot to play out. That, you know, I really like things on this level to be character driven because we don't have big effects or anything that it's all just about waiting for the penny to drop and just being like oh wow that character you know did that to that other character that makes total sense um and you know if i sell the audience on that i think that's that's the moment i know when it's like okay this film is working in some capacity do you think it's based on experience uh, obviously it always is but it, do you yeah. get do you get it from uh, your own life experiences or you knew somebody like that and you go man this would be a great type of person to, to integrate into the piece oh being perfectly honest a lot of it is from experience um that you know i think that there's a strange impersonality if you try to make a story that's completely removed from yourself. And that's not to say that like every story you tell needs to be like autobiographical, literally, like, you know, that these literal events happen to you. But I think that if you don't take like, you know, kind of personality traits or like things that you've actually done yourself or witnessed in very close friends, then, you know, that's how you come up with stories that are very arch and unbelievable. Um, and, you know, that's, that's just not what I'm after really right now that I think that, you know, getting kind of my, like I value my personal experience enough that I'm like, okay, you know, I feel like this is what will make my art distinctive is that, you know, I want to tell a story that I can tell because, you know, some, another, like a story about say, I don't know, a, a like a, a policeman, like, you know, I'm not a policeman. I, I, I don't tell that story. So like, you know, I, I don't know why I would do that necessarily. So a lot of personal experience goes into it. When you're when you're uh, uh, finally down to your final draft, and you know, you know, this is something we're going to go with. How? What is your process in going about and uh, going to the next step and building a team? Yes, um, because you know, writing takes a while. That I think you know, with my biggest project, 
it took me a weekend to write the script. Like, you know, I pounded 120 pages out in a weekend. But then, you know, my co-writer and I sat on it for about a year and continually revised just because we really wanted to get the script nailed. Um, and, you know, when you do have a script that you're happy with, that you're, you're proud of, then I think, you know, it, it is a bit easier to assemble a team in the sense that it's like, you know how to, you know, you've been around with the story long enough and you know how to explain it. Um, and also it's just like, you know, people want to work on good stuff. They want to work on like a better, more well thought out story than something you just like came out with in a weekend. Right. Um, and I think that film school was very handy in just kind of introducing me to a lot of, you know, people who like, you know, I have like two go-to DPs and like, you know, a few go-to editors, um, that it's like, I, you kind of have that little like network of people in your mind that you're that you can kind of tell about the project even before, um, you know, the final script is ready. And that is something I would recommend doing um, to just really try to involve people in the project and make them feel like they have agency in it. Um, because again, you know, if someone feels at this level that they can make a meaningful difference to something good, then they'll want to part, they'll be more passionate about participating in it. But it's like, it's less about like, you know, I am paying you X an hour. It's like, no, it's like, you know, we, we need to make this cool thing together because, you know, we're all just like learning and starting out right now. Um, that, yeah, and I think that casting is a really essential part of any project. Um, I'm a big believer in it. I like, I do casting directing for some other people's project just because I think it's a really fun thing to just, you know, go out, especially, you know, I'm in New York, so there's a huge pool of actors um, to like meet all these different personalities and find who's actually right for the role. Um, not necessarily, you know, the actor who's like got the most wide range ever, but just the actor who they fit this role. They're really right, you know, for this character. And I believe them, you know, I believe them. And I also know that they'll be able to push back on me if I ask them to do something that the character wouldn't do. Um, and, you know, I think with actors in particular, I, I am completely happy to share drafts, you know, before it's done and just be like, oh, you know, this is something percolating in the old head right now. Like, what do you think? You know, do you think that like down the line, you might be interested in auditioning for this? Um, just because, you know, again, like, why not? Why not involve people that I'm not afraid? I think it, it behooves you to not be afraid to show something in a slightly rougher state if you know you have the little asterisk little caveat that it's like oh i'm still working on this this is a work in progress the people are generally understanding of that what do you think makes uh you a better director or a director suited for the genre that you like to uh, like to film which which i i think uh, it, it, it's bending toward uh romantic comedies or, or, or people stories. Is that true or are you, I, I didn't never want to put anybody into a niche that they don't want to be put into, but. Oh, it's fine. You know, what, what, what do you, what yeah. do you like to shoot? I mean, what do you like, to, who yeah. do you like to tell stories about? Um, I like to tell stories about young people um, because I am a young person, but it's just like, that's kind of the experience in my life right now. Um, that again, you know, I'm not saying, there are plenty of good stories to be told about like, you know, getting old and like, you know, really kind of um, one last voyage, but you know, they're not really my stories and I just don't have that sort of personal connection to it that I like ensemble pieces of young people. And in terms of generally speaking, genre wise, I like to do romances. I think there's just something, you know, um, even if you don't know the actors, even if like, you know, they're not star names for romances working, then I think that there's something that even a general audience member will find feeling. Um, 
But that being said, you know, I also like to venture out into other genres like horror, you know, it, it does vary. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, I think that, um, like, just getting a, a good cast that is willing to work with you and really willing to make the characters come to life um, just appeals to me. I think that I'm, you know, a good director at romances just because I think that, you know, I... I really, you know, I, I used to act myself, so I just have a good connection with actors, and I'm also not afraid to be blunt um, when something's not working, when, you know, I don't, I disagree with the character choice they're making, um, and, you know, there's a lot of complicated emotions that go into romance, like, you know, a lot of complicated motivations that are perhaps not the friendliest or nicest to say, but, like, you do need to discuss that with an actor. And I think that the worst thing I've seen on set is when directors just kind of retreat to, you know, with their DP or their crew. Um, and they're like, oh, you know, the actors will figure it out themselves. That it's like, no, the actors want an engaging experience. They like to be, you know, talked to and feel like, you know, they're actually a creative partner in this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the director actor dynamic is so essential to me and that's why I work well at making character-driven pieces. I think it's also uh, your your job. I'm sure you do that. And I'm curious to see what your your take is on how you get uh, the audience to love your character or care for your character, or uh, mm-hmm. in some cases, not or dislike your character. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have certain techniques or certain ways that you try to go about that? Or is that just written in back in casting? Or is that cast backed in casting? You know, that's a very interesting question in terms of I'm very much of the opinion that if you're directing a piece, you should have an idea of how you want an audience to feel about a character in the moment. Not that, like, you know, an audience member may feel different. That's fine. But you should have something that you're, like, deliberately trying to achieve, like, in terms of do I want, to, you know, an audience member to, like, dislike a character after this scene, you know, find what they did a bit questionable, or do I want them to really appreciate and think it's heroic? Um, because I think, you know, again, something that I see, which I'm not so keen on, is people trying to constantly make characters' actions ambiguous. And it, you know, the audience, an audience member who doesn't know the story just watches it and is confused. That, like, you do need kind of a clarity of, um, you know, you got to like the character at one point, not like the character at one point, because you know, even your main character, it's okay if you don't like them in everything they do. Like, you know, I guarantee any of your favorite movies out there, like, you can think of at least one thing the character does, the main character, that it's like, oh, that was a wrong choice. That was, like, not a good choice, you know? Um, But it was very human. It was very understandable. But, like, as long as an action is motivated and, you know, coherent to the story, I really appreciate it. And I think that any kind of small tricks to make an audience, you know, like or dislike a character that you know, like actors who have an incredible amount of charm which it's something you kind of you know it's trained obviously but like there are character actors who just like have an incredible charisma to them and especially with the unlikable characters like you know the jamie lannisters from game of thrones or whatever incredibly charming people to pull that off that like you know it's hard to find some random actor from the side of the street and just say like, you need to do a very complicated role. That a lot of it does fall on the actor, but also on the storytelling in terms of it's like, you gotta think out what they do and you also gotta think out how the other characters perceive them. 
like oftentimes if all the characters agree with one character's decision, then that decision by the audience might be looked at as positive. Even if, you know, later down the line, they're like, oh, maybe that wasn't the best choice. Um, whereas, you know, if you have other characters contest the decision, then maybe it'll be looked as, as, as negative. It's all about, you know, juggling kind of the actor, the story mechanics, and just like, is it right for the story at this point? I hope I've answered that question. I know no, that it, it's, it's actually very helpful. And, and, and I'll, I'll expand on that and, and, and ask sure. you how, when you have so many characters uh, coming in and you know, you've got to mix and see if the interactions um, uh, work, do you, do you tend to do that at the table read or is it, is it you're on set and you go, man, this is just not working or, or, or in rehearsal? And obviously sometimes you have to wait at the third stage of, 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 of filmmaking is in the edit, but where do you yeah. tend to uh, uh, detect some of these problems that go, boy, that's just not gonna work. It worked on paper, but now it's not working as we're actually reading it. Is it the wrong actor? Is it the wrong you know, location or, yeah. or timing? So when do you work that out? You need to be vigilant everywhere in the process. Like there's no process, there's no point in the process where you can be asleep in terms of how, you know, audience perceives characters. That it's like, I want to know even in my rough drafts, which, you know, currently working in a rough draft or something, that I'm asking people, you know, literally last night, it's like, how did you feel about the main character? Like, you know, how did you feel about what he did on page 61? Um, that you need to kind of just always keep an eye on that because also like, if, it does, if it's problematic in the script, it's hard to make an actor sell something that it's like, they're really fighting against the nature of the script, that like, this is such an unlikable thing they're doing, um, that, you know, the audience is going to perceive it one way, like, you need to, you might need to address that within the script. But to your point, it's also in casting and rehearsals, that it's like, you know, it's very evident in auditions, but, you know, I believe in table reads, I believe in rehearsals, I believe in, again, really getting the actors involved in the material. Um, in order to just make their performances feel authentic. And again, also with ensemble pieces, you want the characters to be able to bounce off one another. The actors need to be comfortable with each other to do that. Um, you know, generally speaking, I'm sure again, talent, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, um, that I think, you know, I'm willing to, to rewrite anything, you know, in the script, but also during a rehearsal. But it's like, if it's evident that like, oh, this character interaction isn't working out, like this fight scene is not playing you know, how we want it to play for the larger story. Because again, I think one thing as a director you need to think about is always what's not only right for the scene, but what's right for this, you know, this moment in act two or act wherever, right? Um, but lastly, you do need to look for it in the edit as well. So I'm not kidding when I say you just need to keep looking for it everywhere, that I'm a big believer in showing rough cuts to people. Um, that I think, you know. No matter how painful. The, no matter how painful, no matter like, you know, you got to caveat it. It's like, it's not sound designed. It's not colored. It's not, there's no music. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is rough. You got to apologize in advance. But like, you know, luckily my friends are nice enough that they still continue to look at the rough cuts sometimes um, that, you know, it's evident there that I like to allot time for pickups and reshoots because, you know, honestly, big Hollywood movies do it. Why shouldn't we? Um, if not more, if not more, not more, we don't have like, we don't have the support network. We don't have, you know, a thousand eyes looking on it that I think, you know, if you need to do a reshoot or a pickup because a scene is not landing, I don't look at that as, you know, failure of any sort. I look at that as making the film better. I look at that as just like, oh yeah, you gave more effort to make your overall film better. Sure. Why not? Um, and, you know, obviously there's a debate about like, oh, but was that your original intention, your principal photography and all that? 
But I think at the end of the day, what audiences see is the movie on screen. And if it doesn't fit your original intentions, or if your original intention just didn't work for one reason or another, um, then you got to make a piece that works within itself. It's functional. Like the movie itself needs to function. But you can't be there next to, you know, someone you don't know explaining like, oh, actually, you know, to give you context through this scene, this character is X and X and X. Um, if they don't get it, they don't get it. Um, and again, edit, like, test viewings, just having people look at rough cuts really helped us on the bigger projects determine what scenes should be cut and what scenes should be reshot. And also if a different approach is needed for a scene, like just a different editing approach that it's like, oh my God, a character was way too harsh here. Let's, you know, scavenge through the alternate takes and, and remold this. Um, and sometimes it does happen that way. And I think that it's like editing to me is always like a miracle of like, take all the ingredients of the stew and you know, it's not like you need to stuff everything in. You definitely shouldn't. To choose whatever makes the best broth. And so uh, I, I take it then you, you, and that's another thing that I, I don't think the uh, the casual uh, viewer or listener knows is that um, you really have to build a trusted circle that you can get positive feedback or or feedback. I and I call positive even even um, negative or constructive feedback. I, yeah. I think that's just part of that journey of, of, of getting to where you're, uh, where you are. Is that not, isn't that not, not true? I totally agree that um, constructive feedback is a big part of it, that, you know, you need to not be afraid because um, like, honestly, I'd rather receive feedback in a script or an edit, um, even if it's harsh feedback, than you know, hear about it after the movie is done and be like, oh, if I could have fixed that, oh, if I had just listened to my friend, I could have fixed that. That, you know, I always need to remind my friends that it's like, you know, because, you know, I also give advice on their projects that it's like, this is nothing personal. Like, you know, like we are all here to literally make the best movie um, or, you know, web series or whatever, that it's like, we need to like kind of point out the flaws. And that like, again, it's painful. I'm not saying this is an easy thing to do, but like you just kind of need to get used to it because you're going to be doing it for the rest of your filmmaking career, um, even more so if you're working for, for actual film financiers and stuff like that. I mean, honestly, there's a saying uh, that um, it takes, you know, it literally takes a village to make a, a film. And uh, yeah. there's, I mean, there's many, many iterations of, of the original script that actually have to come, uh, comes out. But the story, you know, everybody says story is king, but how can we be better filmmakers and what, how can we be original and, and, and still tell a great story? I think that, you know, we can improve as filmmakers and be original by really thinking about, you know, what is my personal experience that I can lend to this story? And also, how can I keep it honest and true from my perspective? Because again, your perspective doesn't necessarily reflect the world's perspective, but you know, you're making your perspective in art that I think a big thing is it's like, you know, you can't just fall for like, a feel good story, like, you know, for feel good sake, like, you know, you can't just make a happy ending if it doesn't make sense, frankly, right? Like, you know, the love story can't just work out and overcome all obstacles at the last minute because reasons, you know, Casablanca is probably one of the most iconic love stories, you know, on film, and it is not a happy ending. Like, it's very much a character driven ending that it's like, all the characters have their reasons for doing exactly what they do and the romance doesn't work out and that's fine. That's real, that's human. But at the same time, on the converse side of that, you know, you don't need to make a depressing, edgy film school ending for the sake of making a depressing, depressing, edgy film school ending. Like life is not all gloom and misery. But again, it's keeping honest to your characters that you've created and the logic of the world in which you created, that you can't just kind of veer left at the, um, 
you know, at the, in the last 10 minutes for the sake of making it positive or negative, but you, you need to follow a story to a logical conclusion. But I think that, you know, my main advice to be better filmmakers is that you need to look at endings as that is the thesis of your film. This is what it's building toward, that the ending can't be a surprise. The ending can't just be a, a total, like, you know, out of left field, like, oh, you know, everything resolved itself because external circumstances, which the character didn't know about. No, um, it needs to be a logical conclusion to what your story is building to. Like, you know, if two people are not to get together at the end of a story, then build a story around why these two people, you know, even if they're in love, might not be right for each other. Um, but if they're right for each other, in spite of all obstacles, then maybe they do need to end up together. And maybe that is the ending you want. Um, and I'm not saying to be inflexible in your creativity, but I'm just saying that like, again, there needs to be an internal coherence to a script. There needs to any story, really, that you can't just have, you know, a twist at the at the very end that solves everything. Because um, again, I appreciate- Especially if you didn't infer it along the way, correct? Since you, correct. especially if you didn't, uh, um, uh, Sixth Sense comes to mind. And, and there was I, was about, no, I was about to mention that, yeah. So go ahead, please. No, uh, no, no. I mean, the, the Sixth Sense is a really good example of something that like it builds the twist into it. Like, you know, when you rewatch the film, you're like, oh, that twist makes sense. But it's not like the twist came out of left field. Like, it, you know, it was there was a lot of craft made into that fight club as well. That it's like Tyler Durden doesn't exist. Like, you know, I, oh, I don't want to spoil anything. On <laughs> fight club. But if you haven't watched um, it by now, you deserve yeah, a spoil. Uh, sorry for 1999 spoilers. But in any case, um, you can kind of feel out the twist upon rewatch because the movie is just that well constructed. Again, the internal logic of the movie gives credence to the ending. And that's a very important thing that the movie, you know, needs to lead logically, you know, to not only its third act, but its conclusion um, that like, you know, Star Wars, right? One of the most iconic movies of all time. Luke's going to blow up the Death Star at the end. Like that's what's going to happen. He's the hero. He's been working toward it. He's been bragging about how he's a good pilot the whole movie um and you can't just subvert that and have him like blow up at the end like that doesn't feel right either like you know um so, you, again the logic of your own story you need to respect it um that's my main advice i think it's fun i i, I and and uh, uh certainly that we try to make the journey fun we all know when two people come together i mean it doesn't take a genius to say these guys are going to get together but i think we yeah. just enjoy uh enjoy that journey you know, I, I've held off long enough. I want to hear about uh, the last Christmas party and and what went behind that, and uh, you know, really where, where uh, how that evolved and and your process of filming. Of course. Um, so I made the last Christmas party. It's a micro budget feature, um, and you know, it's gone to some festivals, and now it's been picked up by the distributor four by three. So that's all good, and it's a romance that takes place at Christmas. Um, that it's this ensemble piece that takes place over one night, and it's a bunch of college students and kind of how they deal with their love lives in the last night of the semester. That I think, you know, one important thing in me making that was that, you know, again, I, you know, was that age when writing the script. I am still that age, I'm not old. Um, but I wanted to make it feel really authentic and genuine that, you know, it's an ensemble piece, there are three couples. I'm not spoiling my own movie if I say, they're not all gonna end happily, like, you know, that's just not the logic of the world that we created. That like, and the, those are not the characters we created. That you know, you can kind of have this great connection with someone, but if the story kind of 
lead is leading you to the fact that it's not going to work out and maybe it won't work out within the story. Um, and I think that, you know, again, making a character driven ensemble piece with this network that I kind of, you know, built up during film school of like a lot of wonderful actors and crew members, I think was really, you know, one of the happiest achievements of my life. And it was just like, wow, you know, all of us came together without, you know, Paramount behind us or even, you know, a smaller company behind us um, and still told a story that went from beginning to end, coherent um, and that you know, people so far have seemed to like. So how, how uh, did you end up uh, with Chase and what was his role um, in, in the filming of the movie? Yeah, um, so Chase is my exec producer um, and he's also the distributor. Um, he owns 4x3 and you know, I got to know Chase through a mutual friend um, that it was just kind of a happy coincidence that, you know, you meet people along the way in the middle of film and then they introduce you to other people. And then Chase and I just happened to be at the right stages in our lives. That I was like, wow, you know, I'm working on this, you know, this film and you need a film like, you know, you want, want a film. And, he, you know, thankfully he was into the last Christmas party that we just hit it off and we were able to, you know, we're just working together right now to get this to audiences come Christmas time. That's uh, that's fantastic. Uh, and it does take a, a good team and people don't understand that. All right. So you've made this great movie. Tell me about uh, the process of filming it and how uh, how many days of principal photography uh, did you go through and, and what were your um, pickup days and how many pickup days did you have? Yes. Um, so, you know, we had a principal photography period that lasted three weeks um, and it was 21 days, two breaks. So it was a pretty long journey um, because, you know, being honest our, with ourselves, we knew that we were filming, the script um, back then was running 105 pages, that we, you know, we didn't want to rush it. Like, you know, there was no point in making this thing if we didn't make it right. Like if we didn't make it to our satisfaction. And if that meant, you know, the production budget needed to be bigger because we needed more days, well then the production budget needs to be bigger or we can't make a movie. Um, that we wanted to give enough time that like, we didn't need to rush things. We could get multiple takes. We could get enough coverage. Um, and I think we really did. We ended up, you know, truth be told, filling up about 12 terabytes, something fun, but like we eventually just needed to buy more hard drives because we were like, oh good, you know, we're getting enough material that it's my editor's nightmare now, um, not mine. So <laughs> I think that, um, you know, principal photography was really fun just because everyone was really gung-ho to do it and we scheduled it you know so it was during nyu's christmas break um so that way a lot of my friends who were still in film school you know i took i took a few weeks off work but uh, some of my friends you know were still in college and so they were like okay you know well i'd have no january plans let's do this big thing and so we did this big thing um that like just timing it right and timing it around people's availability really helped um you know obviously that was easier because we were in college would I do it again, like as one continuous stretch? I don't know, maybe I'd break it up over a few weeks. Um, but regardless, I do think that, you know, you just, you can't rush these things. You can't like give seven days and think you can get a whole feature done. Um, maybe you can, but like, I, you know, there's no reason to kind of be working with one arm in a sling. Um, that being said, we also did do um, reshoots. You know, we eventually went to, um, film more scenes after completing an initial edit. And I think that one thing I was clear with, with my editor was it's like, you know, I appreciate that you want to make, you know, the most polished first edit ever. I also need a first edit pretty ASAP because I need to know 
like um, if things need to be reshot before I, you know, any of the shooting locations change irrevocably or if any of the actors, I don't know, cut their hair, which actually still happened, but you know, that's that. Um, Even though that, you say that repeatedly, please. I said, don't cut your hair, don't cut your hair. And then, you know, one of the actors, I won't name names, but they, they actually even hit it on their Instagram story for me that they got this new haircut. And we, we had to get hair extensions and a wig um, that it, it's convincing. I defy anyone to find the, the scene with the wig, but it, it was at the same time like, oi, you know, new nightmare. Um, but again, I really believe that, you know, we had five days of reshoots. Um, sorry, no, actually four days of reshoots. Um, and that was about, you know, 15 pages or so of, things that we wanted to, scenes we wanted to add, like just brand new scenes to clarify things in the plot, as well as like, you know, there was one new version of a scene and then there was one scene that was just entirely shot. Um, that you, you know, you again, really want to give yourself the time to nail it. Um, because also, you know, something that I, I am very upfront about is that not every scene you film is going to end up in the finished cut. Um, and I think that a movie is better for that. Like, you know, a movie that just has everything stuffed in, you know, it might be longer, but it might not be as good. Like, you know, The Godfather has 40 minutes of deleted scenes, which you can see on HBO or something like that. But like, there are, um, you know, classic movies that have had scenes cut and scenes reshot. But again, I really, I love to embrace the post-production process um, and make it synergistic with the production process in terms of like giving myself enough material from production that I can play around in editing and that I'm not just beholden to like, oh, there's only one way to cut this scene because we only got, you know, this many angles and, you know, we didn't really get any takes. So we'll have to leave that massive continuity error. We'll have to leave that, you know, horrible moment that doesn't really sell in just because we need it to function. It's like, no, there's always a choice. There's always a way um, to fix things. I think that's, uh, it's amazing that, uh, again, if, if you've never made a film, you, you don't realize how those team members that you're relying on, scripties and, and you know, you, your, your first AD and, and everybody else, uh, you know, contributing to helping you achieve that because, you know, you have enough on your, on your plate. You know, I, I, I have a detailed question about, uh, first of all, were your day, did they tend to be 10 to 12 hour days or did you, were you flexible that way? How did that work? Our, our typical days were actually eight to 10 hours. Um, that we knew if we were, you know, filming for an extended period of time, um, and because, you know, some of the crew was working on a volunteer, like the PAs were working on a volunteer basis, to be frank, that, you know, we didn't really want to overtax anyone, especially the actors. Like, you know, there was a lot of long dialogue scenes that they needed to get through, and we didn't really want to just tire them out in the first week. That we were like, all right, you know, there, there are diminishing returns to like the final two hours of a day. Um, that because we were shooting for 21 days with only two breaks, we were like, we kind of need shorter um, shooting days because also the whole film takes place at night, basically. Um, and so, you know, we were shooting in winter. So fortunately we could fake that 5 p.m. is night because it's New York and the East Coast. But at the same time, we didn't want to keep people here till like 3 a.m. and then have them have to, you know, get up in the morning, go do their lives and then report back to set in the afternoon that we really, again, wanted to be respectful of people's time and also just know ourselves and be like, we can't, we can't just be continuously doing 12 hour days, um, you know, with, with this much to get through. So it varies per production, but that's what we did. 
It's a sure way to burn out your crew. In an ideal world, you'd also have the time after you've had a long day to go over the dailies and almost mm-hmm. place these parts in the edit. Did you have an, uh, were you able to do any of that? Is that something you wish you had done or will do in fe- uh, future films? Obviously budget dependent. And mm-hmm. were, would, it, would it have been nice to have the time and allotted time to um, A, put, them on, put it on some sort of timeline to see if it works so that if you needed to do a reshoot, you could do it quickly? Mm-hmm. Or was that simply not built into the schedule? We totally did dailies. Um, I think that's a very important thing. Look over your footage. Like, you know, you might remember that something happened on set, but like, unless you have it on the camera file, you don't have it. Like, and that's, sorry to be blunt, but that's just how it is. That, you know, one thing we did that was very helpful is that at the end of the day, the DP, the producer, um, the editor and me would all get in a room and we would just like, you know, we wouldn't watch the, like literally watch like an hour and 24 minutes of footage, but we'd like look through parts, crucial parts, crucial emotional beats, you know, um, my editor would once in a while experiment like, oh, does this cut actually work? Um, and also my DP would experiment with like, you know, is this day for night scene going to work in color grading? Like, you know, is, are we able to push the footage enough that we would look at the footage, you know, um, with like a, a basic color past, you know, the DP and I both color, so we can do that pretty quick, um, that we just wanted to make sure our film, you know, our film was actually in the can proper, that it was like, good, we have it. Like, you know, um, we can go on to, um, the next day of shooting. Cause once in a while, to be honest, um, there was a time, you know, two things. First, there are times when we had to like literally, oh God, plug the hard drive in. We need to check the continuity of something because you know, it's a feature. The scripty sometimes forgets to note it. And that's no comment on them. It just happens um, that it's like, you sometimes need to look at the footage and be like, all right, how are these scenes going to cut together? Um, and also I think another important thing is that there were, there, there was, um, two instances during principal photography where we saw a scene be like, ooh, you know, that close-up was a bit messed up because of, you know, shifting daylight or whatnot. Um, do we have time, you know, I'd ask my AD, to fit that in the shooting schedule next week, um, you know, when we have the same two actors? And we did, you know, that, that scene where the daylight was messed up, we, we were able to just get right away during principal photography because we caught that in the dailies. Were I to do, you know, like for the next project, I would love if we had an AE to just be cutting as we go, like making a little assembly. Not necessarily, again, not the most refined edit in the world. Like, again, that comes later, but just like, you know, show Something. that the film actually functions, right? You know, um, and also, because it's just incredibly helpful to like know the piece, because it's, you know, it's hard to, you have a vision in your head, but like how, what that footage actually translates is, can be something entirely different. So sometimes you do just need to, Again, look at the footage. Highly recommend. It seems that um, uh, you know people forget that VTR does play a, a, an extremely important role, and that you know there are levels of it that you don't have to have a full-fledged you know uh, VTR suite and uh, you know a playback immediately to the to the time code. It's sometimes just helpful to get just basic proxies, um, which is relatively yeah. easy to do, so they can be cut together. And I think that's uh, that that's something I've made a mistake with in the past, and you know, moving forward, you know, we always learn saying it's just nice to have a, pro- a proxy right away. Um, so you went with the edit, uh, and how long was that post-production process? So we filmed in January, um, but we didn't lock the edit until September, which is, you know, as I explained before, we wanted to do test screenings. We wanted to have like a version of the edit out there to show to our friends and 
you know, our film friends to really figure out, is this piece working? Especially because it was something longer than we'd ever done before. And, you know, that just, the longer, mean, the length means you have more room, for, you know, for the story to not make sense or for the story to falter. And we really wanted to be clear that like the average audience member who knew nothing about the story could follow it um, and enjoy it. Like, and so I think that the editing process was a really fun back and forth between my editor and I, who are very close, um, that we actually, we live together in full disclosure, that, um, you know, cause that obviously made it handy to just, you know, have eyes on edits constantly. And I think it was a very forgiving process in the sense that neither him or I expected every editing decision to be um, absolutely golden or verbatim. But it's like, you know, if I make a bad, editing note to him, or if he tries something in a revised edit that's bad, like, we can't hold that against each other because we need to finish this thing, you know? We need to, like, actually get through it. But, like, you know, just smoothing out the emotion from the process and just really, you know, having fun and playing around. And, you know, we ended up cutting about 25 minutes of scenes um, that, you know, we felt were good scenes in and of their own right, like actors have used them for their reels. They just didn't serve the story and they convoluted some character motivations. And because of that, they had to go. That again, leaving enough room for the edit, even more so than production time is absolutely essential. Because like, you know, on this level, you don't have, you're not Disney, you don't have a release date that you need to hit right away. So you do have some flexibility, like, you know, I'm sure there are festi certain festivals you want to hit, but you do have some flexibility in terms of like making sure it's right before you call it locked. Um, because you certainly don't want to call it locked. Um, because I've been in situations where someone has called it locked and then tried to edit it during color or sound. And that obviously, you know, you just multiplied your problems by like by 10, just because you're dealing with so many more people now. Um, so, yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, did you use a, 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 did you outsource your post house? Uh, as, uh, now obviously you did uh, in-house editing, but did you do any of the color or sound design in, in post? Uh, how did that how did that work yes um so it's how our posts work basically is that we did editing in-house since you know i i'm personal friends with the editor um and for the coloring that was a collaboration between the dp and me um that we're actually we're both colorists it's just kind of a serendipitous thing um that we were like okay this is one bit of production budget that we can save and instead put the festival fees or whatnot um that the only thing we really we we outsourced both the sound mix and the score um and you know again if i had a personal friend who was exceptionally talented who could you know do either of those things and i you know i go to them first um but back then we just didn't have that and so that's why we had to go to it wasn't a full-on post house but it was an independent contractors for both um that yeah with post-production sometimes you do need to hire a freelancer and deal with um, deal with all that. And as far as sound design, did did you have a, a personal connection to have anybody help you with that as well, or um, um, no? It, like well? the, the sound designer and I got, got along fairly well, but you know we're strangers to each other. We like he was just someone that was recommended to me um, from a friend of a friend, like that I hired, and you know he did, did a good job on the sound mix, um, and we collaborated on it. But again, you know. Try to build up your network so you you just have a close personal friend, but that's not always going to be the case. And that's just the reality of it. It always doesn't work out. So you made it into a few film festivals, including the Manhattan yeah. Film Festival. Congrats on that! Uh, did, Thank you. 
tell me when you first heard that it would be uh, that's that you know to me it sort of legitimizes what you do you feel good about it uh, we were fortunate yeah. enough to get in uh, a, a film festival during COVID unfortunately that film festival was canceled but it, yeah. t tell me when, when you when you when you knew that um, you were accepted and uh, what the process was as far as distribution and uh, how um, how that went for you Cool. Um, that in terms of festivals, um, you know, that's the well, that's one of the things that film school doesn't quite teach you. Just because there's a whole there's a whole gamut of things that film school needs to teach you. That like obviously you're not going to get to some things. And so festivals, we kind of have to do our own research, see what we're reputable festivals, and actually, you know, kind of we even attended festivals the year before. Um, you know, we wanted to send it just to get a lay of the land and you know meet the people there and also just be like this do we actually think our film fits here um that you know one of the most exciting things about the last christmas party was actually just getting people to see it um that festivals were our first way to do it that i think i remember in january um we got our first bit of festival news um that we had been accepted into a screening series and they told us we needed to provide the screener the next day because we were going to show in a week and i was like oh god that's what happens when you do a late deadline but you know what this is wonderful i'm gonna look at this like happily and it was great it was like it was an incredibly magical night to just finally see it as a finished thing on the big screen um that i think a fe festivals are an entirely integral part of the independent filmmaking process not only because you want to get your work seen but frankly because you also you know it's nice to meet other people who do the same thing like you know, film school is one thing, but also getting to see like, oh, I really like that movie. I can talk to the director because he's probably here. Or like, I can talk to like that cast member because like he or she is probably, you know, like what not. Um, that, uh, you know, festivals are invaluable and it's so unfortunate right now that because of COVID, you know, we're kind of in a state where, you know, a lot of festivals need to postpone or go online, that it robs you a bit of that community aspect. Um, but I think it's still essential because we found our distributor through um, like, you know, well, we found our distributor through a friend, but other, <laughs> other distributors reached out to us through, uh, through film festivals. And I think that that's part of the thing that you need to um, keep in mind is that like you're showing off your film to people who, again, are looking sometimes to buy up movies. And like, you know, whether that's a sales rep or a distributor, like, you know, you're meeting people crucial to the next step of your film. Because I think that one important thing about distribution, because uh, we're being distributed by 4x3, who, you know, Chase is a friend of a friend who I met and, you know, he's wonderful and all that. And I think that, you know, it's very invaluable to find, you know, a distributor that you trust and who actually, you know, really knows your film personally, which is something I really admire about 4x3 is that they're very hands-on in terms of like, you know, you need to send me this and like, you know, we need to discuss this. And I'd rather be overstimulated than understimulated in terms of that, just because, you know, the distribution's the end game. Um, that's kind of the, the most blunt way to put it, that like you're, you know, you make a film, but your film isn't really good if it's just sitting on a hard drive. Like, you know, and like, and I, I've seen, you know, thesis films and even longer feature films that have ended up like that, just sitting on a hard drive, not going to festivals or distributors, that if you really think, if you really believe in your film and you want to be seen by people, then, you know, you got to talk to distributors, you got to find one, and you really, you know, you got to go release it because you you want the widest possible audience to see your movie. Um, but it's, it's as simple as that. There's no greater kind of goal than that in mind for me right now than just like someone I don't know watching the movie and enjoying it. Great.
job done. <laughs> because you are taking, yeah. you know, uh, one, uh, one and a half, two hours of their time. You never wanted to resent you for, for, for stealing that time uh, from them. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I think, you know, you, you're so right about the end part that you, a lot of us, you know, you're done with the film, you're so relieved, you, you, you might get muddled through the edit, and then you forget that the heart, the most important part is yet to come, and all that energy and inertia needs to continue to get it pushed through to, to have other people watch it. Um, it, so first of all, are there any other projects um, that you have uh, going on that you're excited about? And obviously, you don't have to disclose uh, specifically what oh, you're doing, but I'd love to, we'd love to hear about what's uh, what's up ahead for you. Oh, um, not afraid at all to disclose. We're um, my co-writer and I, who did the last Christmas party, are working on a horror movie right now called um, Ink Black. And Ink Black is basically this '60s horror period piece, definitely bigger budget than. Um, the last Christmas party, but similar kind of thoughts in terms of it's like, it's another ensemble piece. It's another bit of like, you know, people kind of our age. It just happens to, you know, also be a genre movie. And like, you know, the, the stakes are not just like, I'll have to break up with someone. The stakes are like, oh my God, I'm going to get killed by a demon. Um, and that's one thing that, you know, quarantine has been rough for filmmaking, but at least we're able to still write our script that we get on like a two hour call every week just to talk about that script be like you know he wrote something or i wrote something and you know look over that discuss in a very frank way it's like what's working and what's not um just because we want to get that film made eventually when all this ends and again that's the sort of thing that because we made the last christmas party and we've so shown that like you know we can have a film that comes in you know at pretty low budget um and like, you know, gets finished and is, you know, to a satisfactory quality, I'd hope, um, that, you know, well, that gives film financiers, uh, you know, incentive to trust us with a bigger project. Um, and so that's our next goal, really, is to try to get um, Ink Black funded, just because I, I do think it's this cool, like, you know, how many period pieces do you see that it's like in a 60s Catholic college, that it's just like, it's a really cool aesthetic. I like the characters. I'm like, so just down to clown with this. Um, that, you know, we're taking some influences from Twin Peaks and a lot of things that he and I love um, that, you know, when, when we eventually get to make this, it's going to be a ball. And I think other than that, we're working on like, you know, a few short scripts on the side. Like there, there's also, um, you know, another feature that I'm working on, like just script wise, um, but that is still very much developing. Um, I think one thing I do want to challenge myself with though is like really trying to um, get, you know, good representation in my films just because, um, you know, I'm Filipino myself and I really, you know, there aren't as many like, you know, Filipino idols in the 20th, Filipino filmmaker idols in the 20th century that I know that I want, you know, to kind of tell my experiences and my story. Um, and also, you know, it'd be really cool to see some Asian faces on screen, as I think, you know, even Hollywood is doing that. So I'm not saying anything revolutionary, but like, I do want to keep myself honest on that, that, you know, um, get, you know, find not necessarily your first idea of someone you cast, but like, you know, it's a period piece, but maybe the a person of color could still be the lead. Um, you, you know, you just need to kind of negotiate that and really think about the, the choice you're making there. I love to hear that. Where can, uh, first of all, where can we find um, The Last Christmas Party and um, where can we find you? Oh, yes. Um, 
So the last Christmas party is going to come to Amazon in November, um, and it's going to be on a few other streaming platforms. So please stay tuned. Um, that yeah, it'll be available in VOD come this holiday season. That you know, Google the Last Christmas Party. We have a website called thelastchristmasparty.com, and that is absolutely where you know we'll keep that site updated with any information on how to watch the film. There are a couple of film festivals coming up, but I think that like really the big way that we want people, you know, we would like people to see the film is on VOD and not in a drive-in theater, as much as I like drive-in theaters. Um, but, um, you know, beyond that, you can follow me at like, you know, you can check juliancsantos.com and that's where I kind of keep my personal stuff. But last, you know, technicolor underscore Julian is my Instagram. Um, and yeah, that's that. I mean, I, you know, uh, that's how you can kind of find my work. Hey, uh, this is this is a blast. I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, uh, hopefully we can have you on again with uh, talking about your new projects. Thank you. No, I'd love to come on again, um, and I'd love to keep you in the loop about all this. Thanks for having me. And that was Julian Santos on today's episode of Spokes. We hope you enjoy this one, and we want to thank Julian for coming on and being such a great guest and a really great conversationalist. For someone as young as he is, he really exudes such experience and great personality. Make sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player of choice and stay updated with new episodes every week. You could also find us on social media at Red Bicycle Media. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.